African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. This crisis is still damaging, especially Finnish and European economies very hardly, and that's an important reason to get more and more co- cooperation. And uh, what we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of uh, Tiwonge and uh, Stephen, and also we see Malawi violating its international commitments. Well, the position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting for marine species in particular. African Dialogue, a talk show where we cover anything and everything. Thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're listening to us right here on Channel Africa, and the frequency is 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. And if you're listening to us via our DSTV Bookades, Channel 902. Uh, let's move on right now and get our news from Onelinsinsi. Thank you, Benjamin. Now taking a look at your headlines. Suspected Islamist militants attack several military posts in Egypt's North Sinai area. Nigerian troops arrest a businessman accused of participating actively in Boko Haram's mass abduction of nearly 300 schoolgirls from the northeastern town of Chibok last year. And the start of elections in Burundi sees over 10,000 people leave the country in a matter of days. At least 11 Egyptian soldiers have been killed by suspected Islamist militants at a military post in North Sinai. This after suspected militants attacked five checkpoints in the Restive area. The army spokesman says 22 terrorists have been killed when the soldiers clashed with them on Wednesday. Security sources put the toll higher, saying 20 security forces have been killed and 40 wounded. Nigerian troops have arrested a businessman accused of participating actively in Boko Haram's mass abduction of nearly 300 schoolgirls from the northeastern town of Chibok last year. Spokesperson Major General Chris Olukalade says Babuji Ari headed a terrorist intelligence cell for the Islamic extremists while masquerading as a member of the Self-Defense Youth Vigilante Group. Chris adds that the arrest has also yielded vital information and facilitated the rest of other members of the terrorist intelligence cell who are women. SADEX facilitators, who is also South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, has been welcomed to Lesotho by the country's Deputy Prime Minister Mutejua Metsing and Foreign Affairs Minister Khohang Sakamane. Ramaphosa was dispatched by SADEX Troika Chairperson President Jacob Zuma following a report by Troika Finding Mission on the killings of former Army Commander Maparangwe Mahao and the security situation in the country. Ntagane Ngatan. 
The Mahao family says it appeals to the global community to move into action to investigate the security developments in Lesotho. In a statement, Lesotho Deputy Prime Minister Mutetwa Messing says the country has requested SADC to investigate. Basotho are now holding their breath for the second dose of Ramaphosa-led SADC facilitation, which has received mixed reaction, as skeptics say the current situation means the first phase failed. The start of elections in Burundi has seen 10,000 people leave the country in a matter of days. According to the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, the spike in registrations in neighboring countries happened before Burundi closed its borders on Sunday evening. The agency says Burundian authorities had said the borders would remain closed for 48 hours. Stephanie Kutrix explains. In a new trend, the UN agency says men have been joining women and children leaving the country as they expect the violence to continue. Refugees have reportedly arrived in Rwanda, Tanzania, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Uganda and Zambia. Elections in Burundi began with the parliamentary poll on Monday. They're due to end with presidential elections on the 15th of July. And finally, the United States and Cuban governments will later today announce the reopening of embassies in their Steve capitals. This is seen as the latest, if not most significant, step towards normalizing diplomatic relations after a more than 50-year estrangement. Show and Bryce Pierce explains. Senior White House officials have indicated President Barack Obama will make the announcement later Wednesday, but have as yet not announced a date the embassies would actually reopen. Secretary of State John Kerry is expected to travel to Havana for the reopening of the American mission. The Obama administration has made significant overtures in the last number of months, including lifting travel restrictions and Cuba's removal from the U.S. list of state sponsors of terrorism. Negotiations on the restoration of ties have dragged on for months. Congress will get a 15-day notice of intent to re-establish embassies, with a number of Republicans partial to the news. Now recapping on your top stories, suspected Islamist militant attack several military posts in Egypt's North Sinai area. Nigerian troops arrest a businessman accused of participating actively in Boko Haram's mass abduction of nearly 300 schoolgirls from the northeastern town of Chibok last year. And the start of elections in Burundi sees over 10,000 people leave the country in a matter of days. Channel Africa News. Get to know Channel Africa and all the people who bring news, views and great African entertainment. You can now catch Channel Africa on DSTV Audio Bouquet, Channel 902. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. 
Yes, this is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. If you're listening to us via DSTV, you are listening to us on Channel 902. I'm Benjamin Mushatama. We'll be with you until uh, the end of this particular hour from 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock Central African time. Well, today we're looking at uh, uh, the issue that we've been looking at as a theme this uh, particular week, looking at the identity of uh, uh, the continent. How far have we come in terms of what we were talking about also on Monday and Tuesday, just how we are looking and rebranding the continent. Now, this past Monday, South Africans gathered in the historic suburb of Cliptown really to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Freedom Charter. Now, this is a very historic uh, document for South Africa. Uh, The Freedom Charter was adopted by the African National Congress and its allies during the struggle against apartheid and was really a document which contained core values and principles which demanded equity and equality, really civil rights for all uh, South Africans. Africans. Now, however, during these celebrations, many bemoaned that few of the clauses contained in the document had been fulfilled, especially during this post-apartheid period now currently being experienced by South Africa. But looking at an African context, even after the years of decolonization and after the founding fathers of the continent established the Organization for Africa Unity, which was really uh, aimed at promoting cohesion against, uh, amongst rather independent African states and to advance economic development on the continent. I want to ask the question today, has Africa realized the aspiration of its founding fathers? And also looking at historic documents such as the Freedom Charter in itself, using it as a really as an example uh, for our program today. Uh, well, to help us on this particular topic, we are joined by Professor Setuala Emenda, who is the Executive Dean of Education at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. We also also have Ibrahim Fakir, who is the manager of governance institutions and processes at the Electoral Institute for the Sustainability of uh, Democracy in Africa. We also have uh, Mr. Levin Do, who is the lecturer of political science at the Tswane University of Technology. I want to start this conversation with you, Mr. Ibrahim Fakir. Let's start from a South African context. As we mentioned when we started the program, South Africa is celebrating this landmark 60 years anniversary of the Freedom Charter. How significant is this document in terms of uh, South African politics? Well, uh, it's obviously quite significant. Otherwise, you wouldn't be celebrating its 60th 60th anniversary. It is quite troubling, on the other hand, that in your introduction, um, you were suggesting that, uh, you know, many people are bemoaning the fact that not many of its clauses can find real implementation. Well, the reality that it won't, uh, and that's quite simple, because the Freedom Charter is not, in fact, a policy document. It is literally just an idealistic vision-setting uh, set of proposals. Hmm. And what what it sets out to do is tries to envisage what it believes is an ideal society. So it is something in which you base your aspirations on, but it's not something that you will necessarily concretize. Mm. How you concretize it is through good government, is through uh, competitive politics, uh, is through sufficient institution building, uh, and not sort of willy-nilly ideas of what you think freedom is. The mm. second point to make is that there appears to have been a willful myth misunderstanding of what the idea of freedom is. 
And, you know, the idea for many people is that freedom is quite simply the ability to act without any constraints. Well, no one has such uh, complete and absolute freedom. Of course, there's the idea of political liberty, that you have fundamental rights that you can exercise to speech, to association, to belief, uh, to engage in economic activity. But to transpose the idea of freedom onto this popular catchphrase called economic freedom is a fundamental misnomer. Because let me just pose this question. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to wake up tomorrow morning and make an unlimited set of economic decisions without any regard to the amount of resources you have? Well, obviously you would know. So, you know, the idea of economic freedom attached to the idea of the Freedom Charter is, in my view, a nonsense term. So, in short, it is significant, but we shouldn't do much onus on this document to assume that it will will magically solve all the historical problems Mm. that we've inherited and many of our own making, by the way. Mm. Which is a lot of uh, uh, times we've seen that happening, the Freedom Charter used as a form of political agenda by South African political parties. We've heard that a lot. But moving to you, uh, Mr. Levindo, in terms of uh, your views, in terms of the significance of the Freedom Charter, we're hearing there from Ibrahim Fakir saying, hey, it's not really a solve it all for South Africa. Well, thank you, Benjamin. Thank you to um, the listeners. I think South Africa, um, as a nation, we're quite lucky in the sense that we have or we had the Freedom Charter that was drafted many, many years ago, which actually laid the basis of what leaders and as members of society can always refer to as our terms of reference. And what we should also consider as well is the fact that The Freedom Charter was drafted at a time when uh, the majority of South Africans were highly oppressed, Mm. without rights, and we are living in very, very uh, miserable conditions. And when the Freedom Charter was drafted, it actually had to look at what would then happen or what, what would make South Africa a much better place to live. And that is why... Most of the citizens in South Africa, and or the majority of the citizens in South Africa, rather, don't actually differ with the content of the Freedom Charter. Mm. And I think it becomes very, very important for the leaders in society today to actually, when they do a reflection on their responsibilities of, of, as leaders of society, to actually go back and check whether they've been able to fulfill or whether they've been able to move towards the achievement of attaining what is actually contained mm. in the Freedom Charter. To me, the Freedom Charter is one document that is very, very uh, inclusive, that actually at, at, at an ideal, uh, ideal level wants to see change that will actually better the lives of ordinary citizens, mm. even though it's not a cast on stone. Yes but it lays the basis for what we need to see as a prosperous South Africa. Now to answer your question, Benjamin, has the current system or the current government been able to move forward or to look at the ideas that are actually enshrined in the Freedom Charter? One would actually say that the, 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 the desire is actually there. 
And what the government has done has been to address a number of issues as contained in the Freedom Charter. And there are also specific areas that still becomes a challenge to the government and to, to society in general. But one would actually confirm and say that, indeed, a major strides have been achieved by the current administration in trying to deal with the specific issues that are actually indicated in the Freedom Charter. Mm. Well, I also want to move on a bit, step further and look at a, an African context. We just know that two months ago also uh, we saw that uh, just in the same month, in 1963, there was the establishment of the Organization of African Unity. And on the program, we just want to reflect in terms of how far we are as countries, how far are we in terms of realizing some of the aspirations as the continent. Now, we know that uh, just uh, uh, in uh, 25th May 1963, the founding fathers uh, came together and they established the uh, organization of African unity and this happened in Ethiopia Addis Ababa. Moving to you Professor Sitwale Menda, looking at this context of uh, really where have we uh, gone uh, in the right direction, where have we gone wrong in countries as a continent in terms of looking at uh, the African uh, Union in itself and we know that there was recently the African Union Summit, uh, have we also actually realized those aspirations of the founding fathers, talking about the, the great legends, Kwame Nkrumah, Emperor Haile Selassie, Jomo Kenyatta. What are your views in that regard? Uh, thank you, sir. Um, well, I think we really, one has to speak uh, tongue in cheek mm. because um, the aspirations of those leaders and the ideals that they held were really quite high. But what we have seen is that even some of those uh, founding fathers themselves, when it came to actually um, running their own countries, mm. they began to flounder. So it's not like we, we had these you know, big thinkers and mm. people mm. who had very, very high expectations, which then they left to other people to implement. Some of them had the opportunity to actually, you know, show in their own way of governing their countries how those ideals and aspirations could be achieved. But a great number of them actually failed. Mm. So um, we, we really have to hold on to those ideals and aspirations because I think they give us direction. But we should not idolize those people to such an extent as to imply that their own noses were clean all the way up to the end. Mm. Because they also began... If we take, for example, the case of Zambia, which uh, gained uh, independence a year after those OAU things were, were, were done in, in 1963, Zambia became independent in 1964, mm. and one of the founding fathers was Kenneth Kaunda, who is still regarded very highly by some people, as, as one of the beacons of uh, of, hub, of hope, mm. and perhaps some people even think of, of good governance, those that really do, don't know what, what he actually did. Now, if you look at Zambia as an example, you find that the same founding father, uh, just within, within months after taking power, he began to dismantle all those things that would have gone for good governance in terms of the spirit 
uh, upon which the, the Republic of Zambia was founded. So th- there's really a very bad legacy here where you find that people uh, fight for freedom. The biggest thing that they promise people is the freedom because that is what they do not have at the time when they are fighting. And once the same people are sent mm. to positions of leadership, they begin to dismantle everything that would have sustained that freedom. Um, Kaunda, for instance, signed a treaty in 1964 which brought two sovereign states together, Barossaland and Northern Rhodesia. And within months, in 1965, he started demolishing that very uh, treaty, which was an international treaty, which is called the Barossa and Agreement 1964, mm-hmm. and started doing his own thing to a point where we actually had a steady rise towards dictatorship until dictatorship was actually procured constitutionally by manipulating the constitution. Zambia became a one-party state, one leader, and so forth in 1973. So I think we have to, to really um, take stock and say, and, and perhaps accept that the people who fight free, for freedom and really secure those can, the, the freedom for, for, for particular countries are not necessarily the best people to govern the countries. Mm-hmm. I wish there was a, a sense in which once the country has been secured, you know, there's another, another kind of wave and realization that we need other leaders now who will be able to administer democracy and, and rule these countries properly. Well, we're going to come back to you, uh, uh, Professor Situalim, and I have to take a quick break. Uh, Very interesting. Uh, From the sentiments that I hear, it's not all rosy in terms of uh, some of these areas that we covered. We're looking at uh, South Africa celebrating its 60th anniversary of the the Freedom Charter, also looking at how far have we gone since the establishment of the organization of the African unity, using the two um, uh, very much uh, uh, momentous moments of uh, the advance of freedom and the road towards democracy kind of analogy in order to see how far we've been. And we have Professor Situale Menda, the Executive Dean of Education at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, who's joining us. Also, we have Ibrahim Fakir, the Manager of Governance Institutions and Processes at the Electoral Institute for the Sustainability of Democracy in Africa. Also, we have the Lecturer of Political Science at the Twana University of Technology, Levin Do, joining us for this program. I, I want to look at this idea. I are we just ideological as a continent when we come back? Are these themes actually being realized as we move on into our democracy period and uh, the whole decolonization process? Is it, is it really over or is there still a lot of work to be done? You are listening to Channel Africa. This is African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatama. Stay with us. The time right now is 11.23 Central African Time. would like to get to know you, our listener. So we are asking you to tell us the country you're in and how you listen to the station. Is it via shortwave, internet or satellite? And what do you enjoy listening to? You can SMS us at plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five, or email us. It's at info at channelafrica.org. You can also tell us via Facebook or tweet us on the handle at Channel Africa Numerical 1 or write to us 
at the address P.O. Box 91313 Auckland Park, Johannesburg, 2006 Republic of South Africa. We look forward to hearing from you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, you are listening to Channel Africa, as you could hear there. You're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. That's if you're listening to us on our shortwave service into the continent. If you're listening to us in South Africa and also outside South Africa on our DSTV bouquet, it's on Channel 9 OT on the radio bouquet there on DSTV. Thank you for streaming us live as well on www.channelafrica.co.za. Very recently, just this past Last Monday, which is just a day ago, two days ago, uh, South Africans gathered at the historic suburb of Clipton, which also has uh, a very much a big history in itself, and uh, a lot of things happened in that particular township. There was a celebration of the 60th anniversary of the Freedom Charter. Now, today we're also kind of uh, looking at uh, where have we come, using this as uh, kind of a, a springboard to discuss uh, have we made advancements to realizing really the uh, the, the cohesion in the continent have we actually realized some of the aspirations that we've once dreamt of and that we held upheld as values and core principles of the African uh, continent now coming back to you Ibrahim Fakir you were just saying earlier on that hey the, the Freedom Charter will never be realized it's just not in its fullest context if, if that's the case because it's just a guide in itself and then you also heard from uh, uh, Professor Situale Mendes saying hey we might have had all these uh, great uh, founding fathers but they were not as great as we say. They had their also their faults and their their failures, and they just left uh, these aspirations to future generations. In itself, I get the feel, uh, Ibrahim Fakir, that uh, maybe maybe Africans are ideological. We haven't got to the point where we've actually gotten practical about some of these issues. Well, you know, ideology matters. One wouldn't want to simply dismiss ideology. Uh, it guides how you behave. It's a science of interpreting the world around you and how you have to go about um, actually doing something about it. So, you know, it's, one shouldn't be dismissive about it. The hmm. trouble is, is you, if you're unable to take your ideology and actually hmm. implement it or instrumentalize it by having good government, by having competitive politics, by building the requisite institutions, and very importantly, if you think about contemporary South Africa, or for that matter, if you think about Burundi, Mm. where you don't manipulate either your constitution or your institutions for narrow political ends, then you will make significantly greater advances towards achieving some of your goals. So, of course, most of your speakers are correct uh, about... especially your latter, your latter speaker, uh, the prof from, from KZN, about the fact that, of course, the OAU at the time of its founding needed a certain ideological approach to anti colonization. The trouble, however, is that that became the only low-class without ever thinking of how the people in those countries uh, internalize those values. Let's take a, a slightly more contemporary example. We take Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe, and you hear the governors of Zimbabwe saying, no, 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 we are protecting our national sovereignty. Well, they might be doing that, but they are simply doing so at the expense of their popular sovereignty. So the ordinary people are no longer sovereign citizens. They aren't able to express themselves. 
they aren't able to infect, uh, organize themselves, they aren't able to uh, take a different approach to politics, a, a, a different kind of thinking, because if they do, they're at risk of being, uh, of being marginalized, of being oppressed. So they then turn around and say, but actually, we are protecting the economy of the country. Well, what economy? Uh, you, you're hardly even using your own currency. So one has to start interrogating these questions very seriously, not simply taking what leaders appear to be telling us. And, and as African citizens, I think we need to take a much greater sense of responsibility for how we sometimes buy uh, quite frankly, the nonsense that our leaders purport to tell us. The third area is that, you know, whether we think about the Freedom Charter, whether you think about contemporary South Africa, whether you think about the rest of the continent, uh, and even if you think of the continent in historical terms, the definitions and the political approach adopted by the founding fathers of the, of the OAU, uh, of, of all the anti-colonial they quite simply had such a great social distance from the people that they led that those people really didn't, in the end, they could find identification with the rhetoric, but they really didn't find any uh, compatibility with those leaders because the social distance that had crept between them has just become so wide uh, that those leaders started behaving, as professors pointed out, with a certain degree of impunity. And that is happening in South Africa too, where we thought, that the most basic mm. aspect mm. of the Freedom Charter, that the rule of law would be supreme. Mm. Well, we found that is not in fact the case. Mm. So, you know, even where we think we have made advances, we appear to make certain reversals. Mm. Well, let me move to you, uh, um, Mr. Levindo, in terms of that context, in terms of the realizations of those aspirations that we've had in history. How far are we in terms of achieving? And not even that, like what is actually hampering us in terms of moving forward in a, in a more productive manner? I mean, we've cited Burundi, we've cited uh, Zimbabwe. There's other countries that are having their own challenges, the DRC. Um, uh, you know, th- there's a lot of things that are happening on the continent in terms of uh, really, that are not really advancing or fast-pacing the process of democracy, especially after this great legacy that's been left, just by the history, not necessarily the founding fathers, but the history that we have that is very rich in, in overcoming such circumstances that we have overcome as a continent. Yeah, thank you. I think I would just start off by making an indication that, you know, uh, most in Africa we have greatly does who actually played a very, very significant role in ensuring that we fight against the colonial system. Mm. And these are the very same leaders that we all idealized because they were putting an emphasis on freedom, putting an emphasis on democracy, and emphasizing human rights. But at the same time, I would love to agree with my colleague that you still have the same leaders who after they assume a, 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 a position of responsibility as being leaders in their different uh, uh, states, they would actually want to stay on and uh, don't want to move out of power. And that will actually create a situation in which these leaders, instead of being the, 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 the leaders that everybody admired and loved, they would then tend to become the enemies of the people. And these leaders, instead of being idealized and loved, they actually transform 
to become dictators. Why would they do so? In Africa, generally, you would have corruption being exercised by our own political leaders and the bureaucrats. And obviously, one of the reasons why they wouldn't love to, to relinquish power, one of the reasons would be that they are actually suspicious that those that will come in and take over would actually arrest them or ill-treat them, looking on what they've actually done. And in most instances, our own leaders... Uh, sorry, to, s- sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Mr. Levindo. I think we've... To favor them. Sorry to interrupt you there, Mr. Levindo. I think we've lost someone on the line there. So we're going to take a quick break and try to establish connection there and see if we can get uh, that individual back. But hey, uh, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Uh, to the rest of our guests who are still online, stay on the line. We're going to start, try to see where the problem is and then see where we can actually get our other speaker. We're looking at uh, really how far have we come as a continent in terms of realizing some of our historical aspirations. We're looking at the historic uh, Freedom Charter which uh, really, its first clause was really saying, hey, the people shall govern. It was a very powerful, powerful uh, aspiration to be looking at. But have we adopted those people-focused types of uh, forms of governance? Are we looking at the people? Do we care about the interests of the people? Looking at us also, since the establishment of the Organization of African Unity, looking at really advancing economic development for ordinary people on the continent, have we been able to really fulfill those uh, promises or those aspirations? We're going to continue this conversation. Let's see if we can reconnect with our guests. If you've just joined us, we've got Professor Situale Menda, Executive Dean of Education at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Ibrahim Fakir is the Manager of Governance Institutions and Processes at the Electoral Institute for the Sustainability of Democracy in Africa. Levindor also joins us. He's the Lecturer of Political Science at the Tswane University of Technology. We'll continue with him after this particular break. Get to know Channel Africa and all the people who bring news, views and great African entertainment. You can now catch Channel Africa on DSTV Audio Bouquet, Channel 902. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa. Thank you for joining us. Sorry to have cut you off there, uh, Mr. Levindo. Uh, you can carry, carry on on your um, views there. Uh, we're sorry that we had to cut you off on your, your uh, process of thinking, but uh, yeah, you can carry on. Mr. Levindo, are you there with us? No, he's not there with us. Let's see if we have Professor Situala Imenda there with us. Are you there, Professor Imenda? Yes, I'm still hanging on. All, all right, let's see if we have uh, Mr. Ibrahim Fakir. Are you there with us, Mr. Ibrahim Fakir? I, I am indeed, yes. Okay, fantastic. Let's let's move on to you, Mr. Professor Situale Mende. In terms of uh, the issue that we've already covered, the, the idea that, as you mentioned, that sometimes it's not the those who bring freedom who can actually carry out the process of freedom in itself. But looking at uh, people-centric uh, governance, have we been able to uh, really move into that uh, uh, dimension where we have good governance, good uh, uh, democracy, good electioneering? Uh, have we gotten 
into that process as as a continent? Are we moving swiftly, or are there still challenges on the continent in that regard? Well, Benji, uh, I think we still have a lot of challenges, uh, especially in Africa. Okay. If we can quickly look yes, at Mr. what's happened okay. in the in the last few uh, few months in Africa, let's look at what uh, uh, happened in Lesotho. Mm. You had a situation in Lesotho where uh, uh, different political parties were, were, were being elected and they were taken back to power. Uh, they went and formed the government within a very, very short space of time. Mm. There was a huge crisis in Lesotho. They went back for elections, and as we're talking now, the, the, the SADC uh, 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 mediator has been sent to Lesotho because of the situation in Lesotho, which is not conducive for good governance. If you look at a, at a number of other countries, for an example, let us look at Burundi now. You have got uh, uh, leaders, uh, uh, President Kurunzinza, who had to manipulate the constitution in order to suit him and insisted on, on continuing with the elections, even though the situation wasn't conducive on the ground. And the sad part of it is that the main opposition uh, party actually boycotted the elections. Look at what is happening in Zimbabwe, for an example, wherein even though it is pronounced very openly to everybody that the, the situation on the ground is conducive for free and fair elections. The media is being suppressed, leaders of the opposition are being arrested, and they are being harassed every day. And that obviously cannot bring a peaceful uh, environment for free and fair elections. The list goes on for a number of countries that are actually uh, uh, finding themselves in this kind of a situation. In terms of democracy and freedom as Africa, I, feel, I, I think we still have a long way to go in order to ensure that we've got very uh, uh, strong institutions that will ensure that we run our affairs or our, our own mm. elections in a very, very acceptable manner. Mm. But one thing that is very important as well, Benjamin, is that you have got the African Union that seem to be having a strong agenda in bringing in cohesion in Africa amongst, among states, in ensuring that there is a strong developmental agenda, and also ensuring that uh, the rule of law is being observed by everybody. I think it is time now for the African leaders to start leading by example and say, we can actually try and make change in Africa so that the challenges that we face can also be addressed in a manner that is very satisfactory to everybody. Mm-hmm. Professor Stwali Menda, I'm sure there's also some areas of uh, development, some areas of success. We've been citing some of the challenges. Uh, aren't there any? Well, I, I think that uh, you know one can, can point to, to a few mm. Um, but I think the fundamentals are the ones that keep coming back yeah. and, uh, you know, show that we are still very far from being where we ought to be. Because even if you may have uh, some developments in terms of uh, infrastructure, some roads being built, uh, railways being um, put up, you, 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 you find that you know, five years down the line, because of the corruption, the lack of proper governance, and so forth, all those things, if, you know, you have good schools today, good hospitals, 
uh, because there's usually a wave of development, especially soon after independence, for the, the, the new people to show that they are really in business. Hmm. But then you find that because of the vices that creep in, gradually the status of those uh, things that were, were put up begins to, to go down. And at the same time, the proclivity for these people to hang on to power uh, makes them begin to undermine those instruments that are supposed to be putting them to account. Even the judiciary becomes compromised, uh, the equivalence of the Chapter 9 institutions become compromised uh, or threatened if they, if they begin to, if they continue to do a good job. So you find that over time, uh, things really actually begin to, mm. to, to deteriorate, even when there was a good effort at the beginning to show that you know, we can actually do it by ourselves. The other point I need to say is that the OAU lacks teeth in terms of ensuring that all member countries uh, are, are put to account. I think that when you put up all these ideals at that level, there should also be mechanisms to monitor and, 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 and ensure that there, there are consequences for those leaders that do not tow the line. But we don't see that. Mm. As a result, we see that, uh, in fact, in a number of countries, things have, period, uh, have, 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 you know, over time deteriorated instead of getting better. Mm. Ibrahim Fakir, I mean, coming back to you in terms of uh, this particular issue of sustaining democracy, uh, in terms of that, that whole issue of accountability as highlighted by Professor Situala Imenda, how do we hold our leaders accountable? Because it seems that time and time again we have that pattern where there is this gatekeeping, this dominance from African leaders and it seems like uh, uh, people have, uh, uh, have no power, they seem powerless. I mean, look at the situation in Burundi, people were protesting. There was a strong, strong contingency on the ground, but it seems like uh, uh, their voices were not heard. Well, you know, I mean, I think that's an unfortunate example, and there's no, there's no magic bullet. Uh, there's, there's only one simple solution, and quite simply, that simple solution is to organize. Uh, you know, if you don't have organized civil societies, if you don't have organized your ability to hold a government to account uh, diminishes. Mm. Uh, you start ceding power. You, you start ceding influence to that to that government. And notice, I didn't say that you cede authority because you know ultimately authority does vest in government. But when that authority is not exercised in a way which is legitimate, which is accountable, which is transparent, and which there's sufficient oversight in which the institutions function then citizens have to organize in order to be able to hold that power to account. Now, Burundi is an unfortunate example because what has happened over a period of time is that there's been a concentration not just of authority but a concentration of power in uh, one particular individual as has happened in many other parts of the continent. Uh, Zimbabwe is one such example. Uh, the DRC is another. Uh, and there's a whole range of them. And so when there's both a fusion of power, authority, and influence in one office, uh, and one particular individual for that matter. Over time, the attrition of influence in society starts to dissipate, and then irrespective of the nature of the kind of activities you engage in as they do in 
can simply use those and invoke those uh, in order to maintain themselves in power. But let's also not lose sight of the fact that Africa doesn't exist in a vacuum. We can't be doing and we can't be having these problems purely of our own making. In part, we are responsible as citizens. In part, we are responsible because of our governments. But in part, there's an international system within which uh, we exist. And that system also has it in its incentive to either corrupt, uh, to influence, to meddle, uh, and to play politics uh, on the continent for their own for their own purposes. And that has happened everywhere, particularly Francophone Africa, uh, but most markedly in a country like Libya. And often uh, we expect our leaders, we've set up this institution called the AU, uh, which is an inheritor of the OAU, to be able to step in. Yet, did they step in? No. They allowed NATO to, to, to step in uh, because they simply weren't quick off the mark. Now, we need to be holding those kind of institutions for account by saying, look, what in fact have you done? Uh, that is of benefit to, to Africa. Mm, mm, you're mm. talking about creating development. You're talking about about uh, about industrialization. Those things take time, but we don't. We're not even seeing a framework within which which much of this stuff happens. So, quite what are you doing as African Union to protect not just our sovereignty, but to but to fulfill the vision of the founding fathers, where we will not have meddling from outside. Hmm. Well, I have to leave it there. But uh, thank you for your involvement. We want to hear from you, so let us know your thoughts as a listener. Uh, do you think uh, uh, we've actually made headway in terms of the aspirations of the past? We've been speaking about the founding fathers of uh, the uh, uh, Union uh, of uh, the Organization for African Uni- of Unity, or now known as the African Union, the likes of Haile Selassie, Kom- uh, Jomo Kenyatta, Kwame Nkrumah. What are your views? Do you think that we've come to a place where we realize uh, some of the aspirations on the continent. Thank you to some of our guests. Some of them are leaving us already. Thank you to Professor Situale Menda, the Executive Dean of Education at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Thank you to Ibrahim Fakir, who is uh, from the Institute for the Sustainability of uh, Democracy in Africa. Thank you to Mr. Levindo as well, Lecturer of Political Science at the Tswane University of Technology. Let's uh, move on now. We've got Wissani uh, Matibula standing by to give us our economics update. Thanks, Benjamin, and good morning. The South African government says a power utility, ESCOM, will receive the $2 billion proceeds from the sale of its stake in cell phone operator Vodacom as soon as possible. Today, the National Treasury has confirmed that the South African government has sold its 14% stake in Vodacom to the Public Investment Corporation, PIC, acting on behalf of the government employees' pension fund, GEPF. The Treasury spokesperson, Pumza Maklanda, says the decision follows a long process of identifying non-strategic assets that government can sell to help fund ESCOM. There was a process that government through, it went through in deciding which non-core assets to sell. It looked at a number of 
options, and those options included the sale of listed shareholdings that government holds directly, disposal of listed stakes that government holds indirectly through development finance institutions, and sale of governance and listed shareholding in state-owned companies, including um, properties and that. So because of the viability of the Vodacom um, sale, it was decided that it was going to be Vodacom that was going to be disposed of. And tough times lie ahead for South African consumers, especially in the Gauteng province, with the cost of living becoming more expensive from today, with the first phase of the new e-toll dispensation coming into effect, an increase in the price of fuel and municipal electricity hikes, debt will continue to drown consumers. Debt Rescue CEO Neil Root says that consumers should keep to strict budget in this tough economic climate. In light of the electricity price hike that we've been seeing and there's a big probability that we're going to see interest rates going up later this year and everything just contributes to consumers having a very, very tough time. Almost half of all credit active consumers are over indebted. Consumers to draw up a budget and to stick to that budget and make provision for these unforeseen circumstances. People must know their rights. If they find themselves in a situation where they are over indebted, then there is help in the form of a debt counseling, which is provided by the National Credit Act. And Kenya has started licensing banks to trade in government securities on the secondary market in a bid to improve liquidity and deepen the market. The Capital Markets Authority issued a license to trade to local lender Chase Bank. Banks had only been allowed to trade government securities through licensed brokers. The government wants to develop its capital markets by introducing new players and products. This is part of a broader plan to turn its capital Nairobi into an international financial center. And investors have called on African countries to adopt uh, new policies of doing businesses. In Malawi, the investment forum, MIF, entered its second day. President Peter Mutarika opened the forum yesterday amid calls from the private sector that government should improve its business investment climate. George Mango reports. Like other countries worldwide, Malawi seeks to attract foreign direct investment, FDI, which is key to creating new jobs, growing the economy and beefing up government revenue through payment of various taxes. For commercial officials, Malawi's tourism sector has the potential to transform the country if well sold through the Malawi compendium of projects packaged by the Malawi Investment and Trade Center. Let's look now at financial indicators. The dollar trading at 12.21 South African rands at 9.722 Botswana Pula and 7.42 against the Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.63 against the British pound and 0.88 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,174, platinum $1,079, a fine ounce. Brent crude oil has gone up to $63.05 per barrel. That's your economics news. Thank you very much to Wisani. Now, now let's move on to our sports with uh, Musibudi Makura.
Good day, sports fans, and starting off with football news, FIFA President Sir Blatter will not travel to Canada for the final of the Women's World Cup on Sunday for, due to personal reasons. The 79-year-old Swiss had planned to attend the match in Vancouver, despite FIFA January, um, General Secretary Jerome Falk pulling out of the opening ceremony. Blatter's lawyer, Richard Cullen, said FIFA's second, or rather senior vice president, Issa Hayetu, would attend the match instead. FIFA said Blatter and Falk will remain at FIFA headquarters due to their current commitments in Zurich. It will be the first time since he became president in 1998 that Blatter will not present the trophy to the tournament winners. Not a cricket news. South African Proteus T20 captain Faf Duplessis says they know what. Um, rather, they know that if they want um, um, to, they, if they are to record another series victory on the road when they meet Bangladesh, the Proteus will have to hit the ground running to unsettle the hosts early. The Proteus will have a warm-up match on Friday before playing the first of two T20s on Sunday. Duplessis says he has a lot of confidence in his side ability to play spin and come out victors against Bangladesh. I think there was nine of the last ten games. So the last game was the first game they lost in Bangladesh for the last ten games. So they've got an incredible record at home. But I do remember playing there before and hopefully we can do as well as we did before. I think we're a team that plays spin quite well. The mature and obviously experienced guys can share that knowledge on even the young guys coming in like O'Reilly Rousseau, which is first tour there. He's also a really good player of spin. But it is really important when you go there, you start the tour off well because any team is a confidence team. The more confidence you have, the better you play. Young guys come in like a lefty now played for them he got 10 wickets in his first two games he's on top of the world so if you can somehow take some of that confidence out it will be really important for the rest of the term the Proteus lost both of their last T20 series with the same scoreline of 2-1 to Australia and the West Indies in November and January respectively the Proteus know they have to get accustomed to the heat and humidity as soon as possible before they battle the Tigers Duplessis stresses the importance of a good start in the series yeah, obviously conditions is tough. I mean, it's we're going into the middle of summer. It's going to be extremely warm. So that's going to be our first challenge. And then also Bangladesh are playing some really, really good cricket. But I do think we're a team that plays well in the subcontinent. For us, it's just about we've had a break now. We're going to make sure we get together and get straight back into it quickly because it's going to be a really important series for us. On to tennis news, there will be no Soweto Open on the Challenge 12 for the second year running after Tennis South Africa failed to secure sponsor. The Department of Sports and Recreation, Arts and Culture sponsored the last event back in 2013. Financial constraints has also affected one of the ATP tournaments in Africa, the SA Open. Kevin Anderson, who won the SA Open for his first ATP title back in 2011, was the last winner of the event and so far things have been very quiet. Tennis South Africa president and interim CEO Gavin Crooks explains. The the SA Open uh, was a special event uh, at a special time uh, as a result of South African Airways sponsorship of the ATP Tour. And as a result of that sponsorship, they leased us an ATP 250 for three years. When the South African Airways sponsorship ended, uh, so the the three-year lease ended for the, the ATP 250. All right. In terms of the Soweto, that's a challenger event, and that, in principle, was sponsored by the Johannesburg City Council. And likewise, that was a three-year plan. So, you know, it, it comes back to um, working on certain municipalities. And so, at this stage, Tennis South Africa doesn't have that huge benefactor. We have a strategy, though, of forming a foundation. Uh, we we po- are partnered by Lotto. We are partnered by SRSA. The government gives us a huge amount of support. 
The Zaya Sports News at the Star. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. Well, that's how we wrap up the program today. Thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And um, uh, thank you for uh, actually joining us. Uh, We're about to wrap it up, but uh, it's been a great program. We were looking at uh, just reflecting on freedom as a continent. Uh, We're looking at actually the past uh, Monday. This past Monday, there was the 60th anniversary of the Freedom Charter. So we said, hey, let's look back at these aspirations as we have as a continent. Have we fulfilled them? And where have we went wrong? Let us know your thoughts on this conversation. Do you think that we've realized some of the aspirations of the continent's founding fathers? Let us know your thoughts by SMSing us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That's plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. And if you're in South Africa, it's on plus it's on O seven nine rather six nine five seven nine three zero. That's O seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. So actually, it's actually without the plus two seven number but hey thank you for joining us we'll be back with you tomorrow